0: Um, I'm Lutheran, so I'll tell you a Lutheran joke. Um, Did you hear about the Lutheran farmer who so passionately, so devotedly uh, loved his wife that he almost told her? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to remember that one for my Lutheran
1: friends.
0: This show is
1: brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul.
2: Thank you for joining the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have a special guest for you. Our guest is Dr. Kenneth Docker. He's the senior consultant to the Hospice Foundation of America. He's the author of Grief is a Journey, Finding Your Path Through Loss, as well as 33 other books and over 100 articles and book chapters. He's also the editor of Omega, Journey of Death and Dying, and Journeys, a newsletter to help in bereavement. Is the past president of the Association for Death Education and Counseling and former chair of the International Work Group on Death, Dying, and Bereavement. Dr. Docker, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up?
0: Well, I grew up in New York City in an area called Astoria, New York, which is now a really uh, hot neighborhood, but wasn't so much then. Um, just a, a solid middle class, lower middle class, working class area um and it was a, it was an interesting background it um it gave me an opportunity to meet a diversity of people the area was very is and was very diverse um so it was a it was a very rich experience growing up there in retrospect so uh, my father was uh was Hungarian um reformed my mother was Catholic they um they decided to agree to uh raise the, their children as Protestant and um And the the only Madgar reformed church, which still meets in New York City and still speaks in Hungarian, uh, which I don't speak, um, they chose the nearest Protestant church, which happened to be Lutheran. So I was was brought up Lutheran.
1: What led you into being so interested and so called to death and dying?
0: Well, it was really very much an accident, uh, also an accident. Um, And what had happened is that um, as I was going to seminary, and I was doing graduate school and seminary in the 1970s, um, 1970, uh, 1969, I started seminary. Um, and I was trying to coordinate two full-time educational programs, which is not easy, and to pay mm-hmm. for it in between. Uh, so what I ended up doing was deciding to take a summer CPE. You had to take a clinical practical experience, clinical right. pastoral experience, I should right. say. Right. Um, and um, And I decided to do it over the summer. Because that freed up some credits for me to, you know, to uh, help me balance my, my work at those at St. Louis U and Concordia Seminary. And at that point in time, my area of interest was actually delinquency. Mm. Um, and probably because growing up in Astoria, I, <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a lot of delinquency. Uh, uh-huh. You know, one of the kids I grew up with had been in reform school. Um, and um, so I was kind of interested in, in, in that. And I actually received. I actually was um, uh, interviewed for and accepted into a CPE program at at Spofford Center. Mm. Spofford Center is where New York City um, sends its juvenile delinquents. Now closed, but you know these are the kids they couldn't. These are the serious delinquents. These are the ones that either by the nature of the crime or by the nature of the family cannot be released back into the community. So prior to, to, you know, they're being held pre-trial. And, um, and that was a perfect internship for me. I was looking forward to it. Um, about a week before I was to start it, I got a letter from Spofford Center um, probably right around this time of year, maybe a week earlier, uh, You know, just as I was finishing my spring semester. Uh, and at first, I didn't even open it. I was in the midst of studying for finals. Um, I thought it was gonna be one of those letters that say on you know on June 1st, report here, bring this, bring that. <laughs> when I opened the letter the next day, it was devastating. The uh, The person said to me, uh, guess what? My supervisor, a guy by the name of Jim Jeffries, um, said, guess what? I've, I've changed positions. I'm no longer at Spofford. There's no longer a CPE program at Spofford. And you have a choice. You can follow me to what in those days was called the East Midtown Protestant Chaplaincy, which is now, uh, has grown considerably and is Chaplaincy, Inc. in New York, mm. uh, which you know, is a major provider of chaplains. Um, and he said, you can join me at the East Midtown Protestant Chaplaincy, which at that point in time was doing, providing service for about four hospitals, one of which was Sloan Kettering, which is a major cancer hospital. Yeah, mm. And so um, I had no interest in it, but I really had no options um, because I could never find a CPE in a week,
2: especially in a
0: week of finals. Um, um, And I was really committed to doing that over the summer. My whole educational uh, experience was my plan was based on doing the CPE that summer. So I reluctantly wrote back and said, yeah, I'll be happy to join you. And, you know, as I'm riding back from St. Louis back to New York, I'm thinking, well, You know, the good thing is I've worked a lot with children and adolescents. At least it'll give me a chance to work with adults. Mm -hmm. Um, As soon as he saw my background, um, he said, you're just the person we need for the pediatric and adolescent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I ended up working with essentially children children and adolescents with cancer um, in Sloan Kettering. And the first part of the experience was, uh, I never forget the first day, um, I walked into Sloan Kettering, to the second floor of Sloan Kettering, which is where pediatrics were. Um, the, the gay room, the playroom, was being painted, so all the kids were um, literally in the lobby just as you got out of the eleva- uh, elevator. Um, mm-hmm. Most of them were bald from chemotherapy. Many of them were emaciated. Some were amputees. Um, some were bloated from chemotherapy. Mm. And I literally, my image of myself is sort of standing against the elevator door saying, I don't think I can do this. Um, yeah. I, I I don't, I don't want to be here. And, you know, and going over in my mind what my options were. And then I kind of, it, it was really a sense of panic. I mean, you know, the, I, I, um, and I'm not a panic prone person, but I'm, mm. I'm, um, I, uh, uh, in those days I was a scuba diver and once I got into trouble underwater at 90 feet, and that was exactly the same feeling, Ooh,
3: wow. uh,
0: you know, that, that I'm in deep trouble. Um, and um, so I kind of calmed myself down. I said, well, let's let's try it. And of course, after a few days, you saw beyond the 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 if, impacts of the disease to see kids and to see their parents. And that became an incredible life changing experience for me. I had to do two theses um, the next year: uh, master's a thesis for the for my sociology degree at St. Mm. Louis U. Um, and then um, a, a thesis for the Concordia Seminary. So I ended up doing them on the pastoral uh, pastoral counseling to the dying child and his family. Mm. Um, you can see where we were in terms of gender in those days. I'd rename that today, <laughs> uh, and um, and. Um, uh, the social organization of terminal care in two pediatric hospitals. And without realizing it, and this was 72, 73, Mm, mm. um, I was found myself on the sort of the second generation of people who were doing work in the field of death and dying, Um, you know, and, um, and it became my focal point. Mm.
1: Interesting. I mean, that it's, you know, it's not, a it, it was, like a flash, you know, that's kind of way that God works. Kind of puts you in a place, and all of a sudden you have to realize what it is that you need to be doing. And Yeah, yeah. And here you are, retired now, and looking back at your career, and we're asking you to see from the beginning of that point to now, and all the changes and all the things that happened during this period of time. And uh, could you identify anything that you see along this path of your, your spiritual journey to... Uh, say that things are going in the right direction or that we're doing okay or whatever the hospice um, chaplaincy is doing? I guess
0: I'm not 100%. I'm not fully retired, by the way. Oh, okay. I still <laughs> stay on as consultant <laughs> to the Hospice Foundation. I still do a lot of speaking and a lot of writing. I just don't do the teaching as much anymore. When I first started work, the um, the first hospice was starting outside of New Haven. Hmm. And of course, you know, during those years, I I saw it grow and saw it develop. um, Saw different models emerge. In 1971, the preeminent theory was Kubler-Ross's stages of dying.
3: Right.
0: Uh, Fifty years now, uh, we've grown a lot, and and while we appreciate um, the historical importance of that work, we certainly look, uh, we don't look for predictable stages anymore. We look for very personal experiences Mm -hmm. that people have as they cope with loss. Um, We looked at Freud's notion of detachment as Mm. the major model. Uh, Ultimately, you have to get over the loss, you have to move on. Uh, Now we approach it from the from the paradigm of what we call continuing bonds, you never mm. lose your connection with that person. Mm. Um, right. Um, so a lot has changed in the theory of grief. Um, a lot has changed in our understanding. Um, certainly, we've um, we've learned one of the most important lessons from kubler Ross, and and that is that um, that die- persons who are dying shouldn't be isolated. Mm. Um, and certainly, um, we need to communicate, respect their choices. So the field has grown considerably, I think.
2: Yeah. So what was the motivation for your first book?
0: My first book. Um yes. Okay. My first book was Disenfranchised Grief yeah. uh, in 1989. Mm. Um, and um, and disenfranchised grief referred to persons who experienced losses that other persons didn't acknowledge or or sanction or uh, support. Mm. Uh, so you had a loss but you didn't have a right to grieve that loss, hence the term "you were disenfranchised." Mm-hmm. Um, and the original basis of that was that um, one day we were talking about widows in my my senior seminar um, on grief counseling. And as we were talking about widows, one of the women said, "If you think," uh, and my graduate students often had a um, lot of life experiences. They varied in age from post college to uh, post retirement, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, one of the women said, "If you think spouses have it tough, you ought to see what happens when your ex-spouse dies." Mm. And I had never thought about that. What happens when your ex-spouse dies? Mm. Um, and I asked her if she was comfortable in sharing her experience, and and she was. And she talked about the fact that they had been married for close to twenty-five years um, before they got divorced. As a matter of fact, they were planning an anniversary, cru- uh, uh, you know, a silver anniversary cruise, and. Um, and what occurred was that at that time, um, she came home early one day and found her husband uh, in bed with a neighbor who um, who she also considered a friend. So it was mm. a mm. very painful, very ugly divorce. Within two years, this person, they had divorced. This person had remarried and developed cancer and died. Mm. Um, and she said, people would come up to me on the street, my friends, and say, congratulations. I heard you got em. Um and she said, part of me felt that way. But the other part felt, you know, this was just this was the father of my children. This was my love of my life for 25 years. This mm. is the guy I went to the high school prom with. Mm. Um, and she talked about the fact that she really couldn't express that with anybody. You know, people didn't understand. Um, even her new partner, you know, um, who, you know, she said, we struggled so long over trust issues. My trusting him after this. That I couldn't say to him, I really miss John. You know, mm. uh, because John had been in, you know, the, her betrayal by John had been an obstacle in in their relationship. That you know, um, so um, I thought that's interesting. And let yeah. me see if other ex spouses um, experience that. And and so I did a study of ex spouses, um, and was interesting about that were, were two things. One is uh, remember this was in the early 1980s now. Um, the one thing that was interesting was that um, most of them um, compared the grief of the divorce
3: mm.
0: to the grief of the death. Now, that was interesting mm. because if you looked in those days in, in uh, the equivalent of Google, many of you, you probably both old enough to remember those indices <laughs> that we had to use. Mm. And you looked under divorce and grief, you would find nothing. Mm. Um, true. You'd find something under the psychological sequelae of divorce, but it was interesting that the people experience it were describing it as grief, mm. um, which I thought was fascinating. Um, and then the second thing was that most people had a reaction, some more intense, some less intense, and there were some factors that affected that. So I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And, um, and then I thought, um, well, uh, it was a fascinating study. It was well-received. Um, and I thought, let me go on the other end of that. What about if you're having an affair mm. and your partner dies having an extramarital affair? You know, so the other side of that, mm. since mo- many of these divorces were, you know, because of of infidelities. Mm. Well, you know, uh, I don't know how research-oriented you are, but um, it was somewhat hard to find that sample. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I would think so. So I did find some, so I broadened it um, to people who were involved in dyadic, uh, multidimensional, including romantic sexual relationships, uh, gay and straight. And in those days, um, there was no such thing as gay marriage. So, you know, so we Uh looked at people who were living together, uh, people who had extramarital affairs, uh, people who were engaged but hadn't fully married. Um, you know, long-time dating relationships in which marriage wasn't, for one reason or another, an option. But all of these intense dyadic relationships, um, and again, um, we found that same pattern. You know, uh, a tremendous sense of grief, but uh, n- no no recognition of that grief uh, hmm. by others, uh, or in, in in some cases, um, the inability to share that that loss because of shame. Hmm. Uh, you know, one woman, for instance, was having an affair with her boss, and uh, she talked about going to the funeral um, with her friends, and, you know, and she was just one of the secretaries, not even this person's secretary, and all of them kind of joking about his death and, you know, and trying to figure out what's the shortest time they could spend there and still be respectful
3: mm. uh,
0: before they went out for a drink. And, and meanwhile, she's lost the love of her life. Um, so it was, uh, so that's where somebody said I had a loss, but I had no right to grieve. And that's when I started using the term disenfranchised grief.
1: It's interesting. My, uh, part of my life history is, uh, is divorce as well. And this was back in the middle eighties. And I mean, I was going through this thing and, and I had no idea what I was experiencing. And, uh, I went to and got some, uh, Counseling, and my counselor looked at me and said, "You're grieving," and I'm like, "What? You're grieving because uh, of the divorce?" And I'm like, "So this is what grief is all about." And it was awful. It is yeah. just, and of course, how do you talk to anybody about that when you're also, you know, you already have your shame of having to have it to go when you're going through a
0: divorce? I think the key issue is validation to say, "Yeah, you, you know, you are grieving," just like your counselor said. And you have a right to that grief. You've experienced a very significant loss, and then of course you talk about what you're experiencing, how that loss has affected you, um, and and how you can. And then of course to discuss the ways you're going to cope with it. Um, one of the things that I think came from my clerical background as well as my mental health counseling background um, is that you know I've begun uh, that I've been a big person who's used ritual. Uh, in my work, and uh, written a, a number of pieces on what we call thera- what I call therapeutic ritual, which is you know using certain kinds of rituals to cope with your loss. And I wrote some of the first pieces on use rituals as a therapeutic tool.
1: That yeah. is awesome. That is awesome. And
0: we spoke there about rituals of transition to mark movement, rituals of continuity to reaffirm a continuing bond, rituals of reconciliation. To finish business, you know, yeah. uh, accept or yeah. receive forgiveness, and then rituals of affirmation, just to say, "Hey, thank you, I love you."
2: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Powerful stuff. In '93, you wrote "Death and Spirituality." We are we are both hospice chaplains, and uh, how was chaplaincy during that time? And um,
0: well, I've never—I mean, beyond my internship, I've never served as a chaplain.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh-huh.
0: So you know, beyond my. Um, but, uh, but I think what we tried to do in death and spirituality mm. is to, um, and it was interesting, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, um, that book came out of a, a symposium we did at ADEC. Mm. Um, ADEC is the Association for Death Education and Counseling, mm. major professional organization for grief counselors and people interested in that. Um when we did the seminar, we had an interesting response. That's why we decided to do a book. But one of the things that we ended up doing, so we ended up doing this panel discussion on death and spirituality. And of course, if you've if you're planning a conference, you kind of have to make some decisions um, as to you know what room you're going to put different people in. This is during a concurrent session mm. uh, when lots of you know when a number of papers are being scheduled and a number of panel presentations are being scheduled. And so, I guess they looked at it the convention committee and said, "You know we have about a dozen clergy chaplain types in the organization, so we'll we'll give them a small room." Hmm. We ended up having over uh, out of a conference of of about three hundred and fifty, we ended up having two hundred people come to our session. We actually had to move twice.
2: <laughs> so people um, were interested and, in the topic. Uh,
0: and what really was interesting about that is mostly it wasn't the clerical types. Uh, they, they knew about death and spirituality. It mm. was the, the counselors who said, you know, I, I, I'm at a loss. Whenever people start talking religion or start talking spirituality, um, you know, I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what to mm. say. I don't know how to deal with it. Um, so in many ways, that was a primary focus to, to say new, you know, certainly to say to chaplains, here is some information about death and dying that you may need to know. But also it was um, to, to people who were um, more secular counselors, uh, secular oriented. Um, and in those days, if you remember, you know, um, spirituality was a private affair, hmm. <laughs> uh, not in the realm. You know, anybody said, God, you ran and got a chaplain quickly. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, And, um, and, and so we found that extremely interesting that the, the, you know, that really, um, we found, and of course now spirituality has been well-recognized in the field of mental health counseling. And, um, and I guess that's one of those changes too. Mm. Um, Christine Puchowski has done a lot with physicians and, um, and spirituality, you know, we focused on counselors and spirituality, um, But it's no longer that forbidden subject. And hopefully people don't run out and get a chaplain all the time somebody mentions that.
1: Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com.
2: So, yeah, and, and in your life, you've seen, you've written a lot about grief and today people are dealing with a lot of grief with the COVID-19. Um, what kind of advice do you have uh, for our listeners?
0: Well, I, I, you know, one of the things that I'm saying, and I'm writing a small piece on it for my uh, my blog in um, Psychology Today, mm. is um, is I think that following this pandemic, we are going to have a pandemic of complicated grief. Mm. Um, Very true. Bec- because um, there's a lot of factors um, in the in the in the, in the in, that are happening now. Uh, people. Uh, People are dying alone. Um, they're not getting the, the the support, whether it's COVID or not. If it's COVID, they tend to be dying somewhat suddenly. Um, so there's a lot of factors that complicate grief and rituals, like funeral rituals, mm, which right. uh, and social support, um, which are really you know, if you were to say um, and and I and there's research by Colin Murray Parks on this. You know, uh, years ago, Colin Murray Parks wrote a wonderful piece. Um, Colin Murray Parks is sort of the grandfather of grief studies. He's, um, he was the original bereavement director, psychiatrist in charge of bereavement at, uh, with Cicely Saunders mm. in, um, in St. Christopher's, the first hospice, or mm. arguably one of the first hospices uh, that that in Trinity <laughs> always make an argument as to who, who really started <laughs> first, uh, in England. Uh, but, um, but he wrote an article years ago called "In the 70s, called "Grief Counseling: Who Needs It?" And his research um, supported the fact that you know that the people who need grief counseling primarily are people who who don't have a good support system present. Hmm. Um, you know, not one of the, that was one of the major findings. So, in other words, if you had people around you. Who understood, who validated, who supported. Um, The likelihood, you know, again, particularly in in less complicated grief situations, was that you would not need that support. And of course, now we have a whole bunch of people who are not having that experience. You Mm. know, uh, I think back on my father's funeral um, and um, how comforting it was um, with both my father and mother to see the the place filled with people. Friends and um, and you know and and huh? and uh, of my siblings, my friends, their friends, you know, uh, and and the fact that it was wall to wall people wasn't its own way supportive because it said you know these lives meant to made a difference.
3: Mm.
0: Um, now with restrictions on travel, with restrictions on gathering, um, if there is a ritual, there's likely less to be less than ten people there at any given time,
3: yeah.
0: and it it really uh, probably complicates grief. There's a lot of factors that are going to, as I said, I think we're going to have a lot of our work cut out for us, even when the vaccine comes, um, because there's going to be a residue of complicated grief.
1: Hmm. I had the occasion uh, a week ago to listen to a uh, presentation by Susan Thistlethwaite from Chicago Theological Seminary talking about grief And she was looking back historically to grief and saying, you know, back in World War II, you had people who lived through that, they lived through the war, and then they lived through uh, polio. And that's my mom. My mom is 96 years old, uh, sharp as a tack, and grieving for this covid in a very positive way because of how she experienced the past. How can we bring that knowledge from those who are more experienced to help us during this time?
0: Well, you know, I think always a legitimate question. And, and first of all, I, I would like to say, and again, I'm, um, history is my, one of my favorite areas of study. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm not reading in the field, I'm usually reading historical fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, it, one of my uh, goals is to write an historical novel, um, on, uh, I don't know if you know who Lambert Simmel was.
1: No. Mm-mm.
0: Uh, Lambert Simmel was, um, was a, a 10 year old child who, uh, was posed as one of the princes in the tower in one of the last, one of the two, two uprisings against Henry VII in the War of the Roses.
3: Mm, okay. um,
0: this, just this little boy who happened to look like one of the princes and was used in service. Um, ultimately, Henry spared him after the battle and made him a kitchen boy <laughs> and later his falconer. <laughs> uh, so he's got kind of an interesting story. You know, I think to tell, and one that's that's not been told well, but not been told. Period. Uh, <laughs> and it's an interesting footnote to the War of the Roses. Um, um, so, anyway, that's. I guess we're getting off on that. But my <laughs> my point is, so you know, I don't want to be tempo centric. I don't want to say this time is unlike any other time. Mm. But having said that, in many ways it is. Um, I'm seventy two. I lived through the polio epidemic, mm-hmm. um, and I remember some of the changes. Um, uh, you know, we had a big municipal pool where I lived in Astoria, still there, Astoria Pool. And they used to have um, a time when kids could go in alone and swim. Yeah. Um,
3: yeah. And
0: that was yeah. abolished, you know, and all the wading pools were, um, any activities that centered on kids were um, were abolished. You know, there was no children's matinee at the movies. you go to the movies, but you'd go with your parents. Um, you know, they, they didn't want children to congregate with each other. Um, this really has been a kind of unique experience. Um, and, and, but certainly we can learn from history. And I, and I guess one of the first things a grief counselor, a good grief counselor will ask is you know how have you dealt with loss before, and mm-hmm. what kinds of things have helped you, and what kinds of things uh, impeded your your journey through grief, and how will you avoid those this time? So I think we can always learn from the past. But but really, I would have to say that this will be a unique, unprecedented time. Um, I don't know, um, uh, you know, probably the closest thing we come to this really um, is a hundred years ago, the influenza epidemic, right. Mm-hmm. But we've never really seen anything like this in the lifetime of most people here today.
2: How do we prepare for this uh, complicated, grave pandemic that you're expecting after this?
0: Well, uh, I, you know, I guess one of my recommendations would be, um, t- you know, to know your areas, to know your strengths, even as, as chaplains and as clergy, and uh, to know when you're in over your head yeah. and, and who your sources of referral are. Uh, I've never been trained in EMDR, you know, in some of the tra- trauma treatment methods. And so, you know, but I know people I can refer to if I really feel that such a methodology might be a useful adjunct, uh, to therapy. And I think clergy and chaplains, um, need to know that too, you know, need to be able to say, okay, this is beyond what I've been trained for. Yeah. Um, who can I refer?
1: True. I'm, I'm thinking about how is it then you, we, that we, as clergy, we as chaplains, can approach those who don't know that they're having this kind of grief. You know, um, because you know, there. I've, I've done a little bereavement calling and all that, and you talk to people, and you say, "How you doing? Everything okay? Can you tell me what's happening in your life? Oh, I'm not eating well. I'm not sleeping. I'm not doing." I said, Are you a, are you talking to anybody? No, I'm fine." Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think I might say, well, you know, um, if it's really affecting, you know, well, first of all, I think you have to assess the time.
3: Mm, right.
0: Are you calling right. a week after? A week yes. after, yeah. I, I would say, okay, that's maybe not unusual. Exactly. Uh, a month after, I'd say, mm, I'm starting to get worried. Six <laughs> months later, <laughs> I I'd say, say I'm really concerned. Yeah. Mm, and I, and exactly. I think then you, you share concern. But I, I think the most frustrating thing, uh, and I, and I, used to drill this to my, um, to my counseling students, um, is that, you know, that the first, um, the first step in getting help is to acknowledge that you need help. Yeah. And all you can do, um, is, you know, is, is again, um, you can say to that person, you know, it doesn't sound like you're doing as well as you think. Um, is it affecting the quality of your life? It is affecting your relationships with others. Is it affecting your performance at work, at school? And then maybe you ought to see somebody.
1: Yeah.
0: But ultimately, uh, and 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 if you want to see somebody, here are some possible choices.
1: Yeah. You got people have those. you can
0: see, and then always the kind of report back. Is it okay if I call you in two weeks to see how that's going for you? Um, you know, when you make those referrals, so people know you're not just dumping them.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but um, but I, I think, you know, the, the hardest lesson of all of us in the in the mental health human services field um, is that you can only offer help.
1: Yes. All right. You're not going to make them happy. You're not going to make them any better than what they want to make themselves.
2: Yes. <laughs> so in your work with uh, uh, Terry Martin on grieving beyond gender, what are your findings there on on ways men and women grieve? Hmm,
0: good uh, question. They both do.
1: <laughs> oh good um, good thanks <laughs> all right next yeah. question,
0: <laughs> next question. <laughs> um, no but let me elaborate on that um, but one of the things we found we actually started looking um at gender as as the dominant issue uh it was actually a study our first paper was um what was it men don't cry or something like that Mm-hmm. Um, and then what we realized is, so we, we spoke about a pattern of grief that we called, instrument, in those days, we actually called male grief, which was more cognitive, more, um, uh, that, that, that these male grievers, as we put it in those days, um, were more likely to express grief as, as in physical or um, experience grief in physical or cognitive ways. I kept thinking about the person. I felt like somebody punched me in the stomach that their expression of grief tended to be more cognitive or physical. And that that's what really made a difference for them. And as soon as we presented the first paper, uh, we began to realize um, that it wasn't um, that gender was a factor certainly, Hmm. but it wasn't the only factor. That there were other factors, and so we t- talked about a continuum of grieving styles. We we did say that men are more prone to this instrumental style in American culture, um, but we certainly acknowledged the possibility that men may grieve in what we called more intuitive ways. Actually, in the in the beginning, we talked about masculine and feminine ways of grieving, moving from male and female, uh, and then we talked about styles of grieving and tried to get rid of gender related language. Because we said, you know, there, there are styles of grieving. Some people grieve, there's a continuum. Some mm. people grieve in a more instrumental way, um, more cognitive, other people more emotional, which we called an intuitive style. Um, and gender is certainly a factor. Um, temperament is also a factor. You know, we argued, Terry and I argued about personality or temperament.
3: Mm.
0: I preferred the term temperament and we I won on that one. Uh, <laughs> Terry's strong. I don't always win on that. So I always, um, and then we talked about culture as being a factor. Um, I'm Lutheran. So I'll tell you a Lutheran joke. Um, did you hear about the Lutheran farmer who so passionately, so devotedly, uh, loved his wife that he almost told her?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to remember but, that but, one for my Lutheran yeah. friends. <laughs>
0: But it refers to the fact that, you know, that many Lutherans, historic Lutherans coming from northern Germany and Scandinavia, tend to be more constrained in in their emotional expression, both men and women. And so, you know, and then we looked at other factors, too. So, for instance, one of the things we found um, is that women who had a very instrumental pattern, um, more, you know, less typical of other women, often had one of two experiences. The the minority of them had an experience that they were the parentified child Hmm. in a a dysfunctional family. But the great majority of these women who had this instrumental style were usually the oldest child, or if not the oldest child, the oldest daughter, in a family with multiple siblings, and they often had uh, caregiving responsibilities to these siblings. These younger siblings. So think about it. You're you're an eight year old girl. You're taking care, watching over your three year old little brother. Your three year old little brother skins you know skins his knee. Um, he's crying. You're going to be taught to comfort him to get him into the house. You know you're ultimately going to learn problem focused ways of coping, which are probably going to stay with you for the rest of your life. Mm. So you know, it really, is about coping styles, how we experience and how we cope. Um, and, and as I said, um, that's why in my work with Terry Morton we you know we moved away from gender as the primary factor mm. to recognizing it as a contributory factor. Certainly boys are socialized in, in certain kinds of ways mm-hmm. that make them more prone to that. And we don't look at these styles as being problematic. Mm. We see each style as having its respect, respective strengths and limitations. I remember after doing a workshop one day, a woman came up to me. And said that was so helpful. Um, If only we can get them all to be um, intuitive. (laughs) Um, And yeah, you know the culture of counseling, as as Sue and Sue say, has been captured by affect. Um, You you know, the quintessential counseling question is how do you feel? And you know what what we've learned is to answer the question: How did you respond? How did you react? because that will free people up to talk about all their reactions. We don't see these mm. styles as ranked. We see them mm. as, um, as as having complementary strengths and weaknesses and of tailoring therapy to the style.
2: Wow, thank you. This has been a very oh, thank you powerful okay. moment of education. Our listeners are going oh, I to enjoy enjoyed it. it immensely. Bye. Bye-bye now. Bye, bye, bye. Uh, that was Dr. Kenneth Docker, uh, who is the Senior Advisor with the Hospice Foundation of America. Thank you for listening.
0: This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.